You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Attempts on World Health Organization email accounts are possibly linked to Iran. Mandrake Android malware is active against carefully selected targets. Volgar attacks Windows systems running MSSQL server. Hospitals remain attractive targets for ransomware gangs. Italy's social security operations have been shut down by hacking. Coronavirus disinformation, the pandemic's effects on business, and a look at the fortunes of Zoom. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. Reuters reports that attempts to compromise the email accounts of World Health Organization staffers may be the work of Iranian operators. WHO officially says it's not in any position to make an attribution, but anonymous sources close to the UN organization say the attacks seem connected to Tehran. Security firm Prevalian told Reuters that they saw significant circumstantial evidence suggesting an Iranian campaign. The attempted cyber attacks on WHO have been murky, sometimes linked to the Dark Hotel APT, which itself has been connected to several governments, but none in a definitive way. Threat researchers at Bitdefender have offered ZDNet an update on the Mandrake strain of Android malware it discovered earlier this year. Mandrake focuses on Australian Android users, issues mass automated attacks in favor of human run operations against selected targets. Mandrake appears to be a criminal operation, probably a patient attempt at what Bitdefender characterizes as credential stealing, information exfiltration to money transfers, and blackmailing. Security firm Gardacor reports a long running criminal campaign targeting MSSQL servers. They call it Volgar, a portmanteau of Volar, the cryptocurrency the campaign mines, and Vulgar, which is how Gardacor views the criminal's behavior. The servers make attractive targets not only for their computational power, but also for the large amount of sensitive data they hold. China, India, the U.S., South Korea, and Turkey have so far been the countries most affected by Volgar, The attack typically begins by brute-forcing Internet-connected servers with weak credentials. Microsoft warns hospitals to expect a surge in ransomware attacks and offers advice on how they might defend themselves. Gangs using the R-Evil, also known as Sodinokibi strain of ransomware, have been especially active against healthcare targets. The current coronavirus emergency obviously continues to have considerable effect, not only on public health, but also on economic conditions and international rivalry. One of the difficulties of assessing the COVID-19 pandemic in ways that might usefully inform effective disease control policies has been the challenge of understanding the pandemic's extent 
and the course infection takes in its sufferers. Chinese information control practices haven't helped. The U.S. intelligence community last week delivered a classified study to the White House that concluded, according to Bloomberg, that China's public reporting on cases and deaths is intentionally incomplete. Others with fewer or at least different dogs in this particular fight have reached the same conclusion. Vice summarizes Beijing's policy with respect to information about the coronavirus, and it finds a comprehensive program of censorship and disinformation directed at both domestic and international audiences. Stanford University's Internet Observatory says that deliberate misdirection and obfuscation have been in progress since January. Lockdowns, illness, self-isolation, enforced closures, and the attendant throttling of commerce have taken a toll on all sectors. CNBC, in a non-rigorous but informative look at startups, concludes that more than 3,500 jobs were eliminated during March at some 40 companies who'd collectively raised more than $14 billion in capital. The New York Times calls the job destruction the great unwinding. The tech sector and its security subsector have been less heavily affected than some others, but they've by no means been immune. Perry Carpenter describes himself as a security behavior alchemist, and he's also chief evangelist and strategy officer at security awareness firm Know Before. I caught up with Perry Carpenter at the RSA conference. And I think that there's two sides to the data story, right? Um, huh. the, the fact that if all these vendors are are successful and all the the organizations are successful implementing technology-based vendor solutions for security, we would have no breaches if that's the solve, right? Right. Um, And the fact is, is day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade at this point, we see security-related breaches caused by human error. And the technology that's supposed to have fixed that a few years ago hasn't. And so when somebody comes to me and says, well, the technology is the, the only way and you're wasting your time with working with humans, I could also say, well, the technology isn't working for you either. Mm. And so you do have to step up and you have to add that additional layer of security, that, that human piece. And then the other side of the data is we do have data that shows that if you are paying attention and if you are training your people and doing that in a behavior design-based way, um, and there's parameters to that that I could I could share with you. Um, but if you're following best practices for behavior design and doing simulation combined with training, then you can knock down the propensity for somebody to click on a phishing email dramatically, um, dramatically within three months and super dramatically within a year. Hmm. Um, and so what we've seen is that um, a typical baseline, if nobody's ever done any training with this before, then upwards of 40% of people have a propensity to, to click, hmm. which is bad. That's a bad day for your organization. <laughs> right. Um, but within, within three months, if you've combined some training with simulated phishing tests, um, at least once every 30 days, we've seen that go down to about half of that, uh, actually under half of that, about 17%. Hmm. And then uh, over a year period, you can knock that down into the low single digits. Hmm. And so that's, that's consistency. You're building muscle memory. You're, it's the same way that if you were to only go to the gym once a year, all you're really doing is causing yourself pain and you're showing yourself how pathetic you are. So uh, people that do a fishing test once a year, that's a what they're getting. you home here, Perry. I, don't know. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I feel that too. Um, but if you're wanting to, to actually improve, 
Well, then you go consistently. You feel the pain for a while, but ultimately you start to adapt and you get the benefits uh, from that. And the same thing holds true for security training. That's Perry Carpenter from Know Before. Zoom has had a remarkable, wild, and decidedly mixed ride over the course of the pandemic. The remote conferencing service listed on the NASDAQ as ZM had between October and the end of January traded between $60 and $80. On February 3rd, three days after the U.S. banned travel from China and the day after the first death outside China from COVID-19 was reported, the company's shares rose to $87.66. They peaked at $159.56 on March 23rd, the day the U.K.'s lockdown began, six days after France imposed a nationwide lockdown, and eight days after the U.S. Centers for Disease Control recommended social isolation. It's a telework-driven surge. As of last week, MarketWatch marveled. Zoom's daily active user count was up 378% from where it was a year ago. Zoom has since fallen off those highs, closing yesterday at $137. Problems with security and privacy have made for what Axios calls a tarnished moment of glory. Wired thinks the issues, data sharing that's prompted a class action lawsuit, oversharing of user data, and relative ease with which skids and others have been able to intrude into sessions, called Zoom bombing, and two new zero days, collectively mean that the Zoom privacy backlash is only getting started. Zoom itself, which Forbes credits with having at least as much transparency as to render the company relatively journalist-friendly, is working to fix its privacy and security issues. CEO Eric Yon has blogged that the company has frozen all updates other than those designed to enhance security. He's also announced a variety of training and support initiatives, has offered clarification and, where appropriate, apologies about certain Zoom features, notably its encryption, which turns out to have been less rigorous than marketing claims may have led users to believe. The difficulties Zoom is experiencing are no doubt connected with its success. A sudden transformation from a reliable and user-friendly conferencing service to what amounts almost to a public utility. That's Zoom's view. As CEO Yon wrote, quote, We did not design the product with the foresight that, in a matter of weeks, every person in the world would suddenly be working, studying, and socializing from home. We now have a much broader set of users who are utilizing our product in a myriad of unexpected ways, presenting us with challenges we did not anticipate when the platform was conceived. Axios offers a speculative but plausible explanation of what's happening. Quote, The same design choices and default settings that made Zoom so easy to install and use are the ones that make it vulnerable. The level of trust that users within a large company assume as they work together breaks down among more heterogeneous groups in public environments. And it's so easy to use that it almost constitutes an attractive nuisance, as a Wall Street Journal story about virtual happy hours suggests. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Andrea Little Limbago. She is the chief social scientist at Virtru. Uh, Andrea, it's great to have you back. Uh, I wanted to touch today on this notion of what's shaping up as, as a global battle for information control and how various nation states are coming at that. This was originally going to be uh, something you were going to discuss in a panel discussion at South by Southwest. That didn't happen because <laughs> of some global uh, virus concerns. But um, let's dig into the topic itself. Yeah, it was, we're supposed to be talking about it shortly. Had a great panel lined up um, with Nina Collars, Ben Gray, and um, Lisa Jiggetts. So hopefully we'll get to do that again in the near future. But what we were going to address, uh, actually, it was large focus on the nation states, but also actually bringing in the non-state actor as well. And so I'll, hmm. I'll explain that. By the way, Freedom House measures internet freedoms and so forth. Nine straight years in a row of a decline in internet freedoms. We're seeing hmm. at the same time, roughly 14 years in a row, decline of democracy across the globe. And so we have these two trends going on, and what it really is showing is just that the spread and diffusion of authoritarian digital control of the environment and what the digital authoritarian playbook is. And we have that pretty well understood, I think, at this point. So if you look at it, and it's not just China, not just Russia, and I, I think that that's the core message we really want to send, that although China and Russia really are the innovators in this area, their models are spreading. And so the way we look at it, or at least why I look at it, is focused on the use of cyber attacks for say data access, data theft, data manipulation, data dumps, those kind of things that I think this audience is very well familiar with. Mm. You've got the hardware and software that they're using as well that can provide either backdoors or other kinds of access and control. You've got the disinformation for controlling the narrative. And again, you're, you're talking about the coronavirus. We're seeing that very much so right now being an authoritarian tool of choice uh, for controlling the narrative. And again, not just in China, Iran and others are doing the same. And then what we're also seeing really is the rise also of using you know, the law and policy use of control. So anything from requiring data storage within their borders to requiring and mandating backdoor access, and that's part of the encryption debate that we see in the U.S., 
has already been going on across the globe. And in many authoritarian regimes, they do require the use of encryption software with government mandated access to it. So that's where you see on the authoritarian side what the playbook really is and that it is spreading everywhere in different aspects and to different degrees, uh, you know, from Thailand and uh, Vietnam to Malawi to Ecuador. I mean, it's really becoming a global phenomenon. And on the democratic side, we really don't know what the digital democracy looks like yet. And so because there is not that alternative playbook, we're seeing more and more of democracies adapt some of those different components of the playbook, not full out ad adopting at all, but getting, you know, adopting different parts of it. And that's, again, where we see aspects like Australians' uh, anti-encryption law, where you're seeing uh, in Brazil, we saw an awful lot of domestic disinformation around their election. And so we're seeing that battle really playing out. And we're starting to see a little bit, you know, glimmers of signs of what a digital democracy could look like. And the European Union is really the one leading the way in that area so far with the GDPR, the, uh, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is really focusing on giving individuals control of their data. On the democracy side, what sorts of tools of influence are available to try to push back against some of these uh, authoritarian regimes? Well, we're starting to see, on the one hand, I think that's where defenders can come into play, especially against the cyber taxes, helping control what data is getting stolen, helping focus on data integrity. Uh, other areas where I really do think, and this is where I'd love to see America start to come together and provide some leadership in this area, is on just on, on crafting the rules and regulations for data privacy and security. And so while we have pretty good idea on, you know, cyberspace and, and the role of offense. And while there still are norms that need to be shaped, and that, that is one idea, actually additional area where I'd like to see is the leadership focusing on, on establishing those norms for the use of offense in cyberspace. I also would like to see the U.S. take a lead in, in data protection and privacy, and so focusing on the soft power aspect of it. So what soft power is in international relations is really frameworks and models that attract and inspire others to want to have a similar kind of you know, policy or model or so forth. And so if you think about privacy and data protection, and especially digital uh, privacy as a component of a digital democracy, those are the, the kinds of behaviors and uh, rights that people across the globe will want to have, especially as a surveillance state becomes you know, more and more pronounced across the globe. And so I think if we could leverage the soft power of privacy and show what, what a democracy can look like that does both protects data, protects privacy, and ensures levels of innovation... And again, we, we, don't have, we don't know what that right mix is yet, but we really also have not explored or innovated in that area. And so I think there's so much room for innovation to figure out what that right balance would be. And on the one hand, you know, there's no ultimate security, no ultimate privacy. But if we can optimize among both and try to get rules and regulations and a tech all together to move towards that end, I think there's a lot that we can be done. Yeah. All right. Well, Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.